0: Following Jesus isn't always easy, but it's not complicated. In fact, Jesus said, I give you one commandment. He said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. So if Jesus says this, why does it seem so complicated to follow him? Well, our goal on this podcast is to simply make real life simple. And today we talk with a modern day theologian, philosopher, educator, and all around good guy. About making discipleship a bit more simple. Welcome to the Rusty George Podcast. Well, Jim, it is an honor to have you on the podcast, and I'm so grateful for all of your work. And just give us the nutshell on on you, real quick, for our listeners who have not read your work or listened to your podcast. Uh, Where are you from, and kind of what are you doing right now? Well, I think for somebody who doesn't know me at all,
1: uh, I've been a professor at Friends University for uh, almost 30 years. This will be my 30th year at, uh, in Wichita, Kansas, and I have been um, a person who's written and spoken and taught a lot on Christian spiritual formation. Um, I was mentored by Richard Foster and Dallas Willard, and so I continue the legacy of, of their work, I would like to think. So if, if listeners know anything about those guys and their books, um, I, I kind of continue that work and, but I grew up in Denver and I, I, uh, been in Wichita for a long, long time, obviously. (laughs) And, um, I, uh, I, I travel a lot and speak a lot. I have a family. Uh, my kids are now grown and it's a beautiful thing to see them living their adult lives now, but, uh. Yeah, it's that that's kind of the, in a nutshell what I do. I did get to know Rich Mullins, a dear friend, and wrote his biography. Probably a lot of your listeners might connect in that way. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I think yes. that's how I first came across your writings uh because even though I, I'm from Wichita, we never cross paths. We have mutual friends, uh but when after Rich passed, you you wrote that biography about him, Arrow Pointing to Heaven, which was just fantastic and and a great read for for anyone who is kind of new to the music of Rich Mullins, uh, I've passed out the the movie a few times to people, but I've also passed out your biography about him to artists, and I found that it, it really helps them connect their artistic mind to um, what's often a flat reading of the Bible, as we have discussed. Um, so, I, I just, I, I really appreciate your work. But I, I would love to know, for our, our listeners, I mean, obviously, you write a lot about discipleship, you've edited books, which are basically devotionals for people and and, and really include a lot of ancient fathers, ancient writers that many of our listeners may have not heard of before. You have this fantastic podcast called Things Above, which is about a 12-minute uh, devotional, which is a great listen to on the way to work. Thanks. Um, obviously, you've got the Apprentice Institute that you lead out of Friends University. You do so much work on the discipleship side of, of things and You hear this debate oftentimes in churches between evangelism and discipleship. I kind of believe they're the same thing. But from your perspective, kind of what's your take on the best way disciples are formed? Uh, I think our friend John Ortberg has said that disciples are not mass produced, they're handcrafted. Um, So, when you think about how you go about these things, and after your time with Dallas Willard and Richard Foster, what's... What's your take on the best way we become disciples? Well that that's
1: fantastic, Rusty, and I'm glad you quoted John. Uh he is a a fellow Willardian and brother, uh, <laughs> and he's spot on. I think that in the way it works is that it spiritual formation, discipleship, Christ-likeness are are more caught than taught, mm-hmm. as we say. And I think that it has to do with being around people who have that life, and somehow in the process of interacting with those who have that life, we pick up their narratives, we pick up their practices, uh, we see a life that they are living that we desire, and we want to step into it. And, and I, I think one of the first examples, obviously, was Jesus and the disciples. Hmm. And they, they looked at him and they thought, Where is this guy coming from? What's he about? He's, he's living in another time zone. And I want to live that life. And then you see it with Paul and Timothy, where uh, he invested in this this younger man, and and then Paul went on, or Timothy went on to to do work. And and Paul was pretty bold. He said, you know, do imitate me. He literally said that. Mm-hmm. So that's been my experience. What because I was with Richard Foster as a college student, and I watched this guy live a life that I had not seen before. And I thought, this guy doesn't just sort of Know about God. He actually knows God, (laughs) and he and he and his prayer life is is vibrant and real. And I just said, teach me to do what you do. And same with Dallas. And so, and I try to do that with my own students, whether they're undergraduate or adult students, um, because we have programs for traditional undergraduate students as well as adults who want either a certificate or to get a master's degree in in spiritual formation and. So it's just it's it's um, saddling up to people and having relationship and reading books, talking, uh, teaching them to do the things that that we do and they do it and they catch that thing and it's it's a beautiful thing to to watch that happen.
0: I, I feel like a lot of your writings talk about replacing the false narratives in our mind. I, I think about the Good and Beautiful God. What, what a great work that was and. And you talked in there. You had these uh, these soul training moments in there where you could practice various things. It, it seems like our culture is is catching up to this idea of of meditation and mindfulness, and oftentimes it's uh, a little bit misdirected. But this is something that the the desert fathers and and the, the church has been practicing uh, for many many years. And it seems like a lot of your writings and certainly your podcast direct us to replacing these false narratives with the Jesus narratives of our lives and what it is we're supposed to not only think upon, but believe about ourselves. Uh, what do you think the, the number one, two or three, you know, narrative, I should say that we often believe about ourselves, that's false? Um, you know, and what are the things that people are struggling with the most? And, and what's the Jesus narrative that you often refer them to, to replace that with? That's
1: a great question, Rusty. I I would say that the, well, A.W. Tozier said the most important thing about a person is what they think about God, or as he put it exactly, what comes into their mind when they think about God. And I think that's, I mean, it's a big statement, the most important thing about a person. Hmm. Uh, But I think he's right, because if you, if let's say a person is a believer, right, they may be just an agnostic, but they're not an atheist. They have some belief in God. Or maybe they're a Christian or whatever it is. Well, how they conceive God is going to determine everything about their lives. Because if there is a creator of the universe, a creator of each one of us who's bigger than us, how we think about that person is crucial. And so if we, if we posit the idea that there's this angry judge in the sky who's keeping track of everything that we do and is poised to punish us, and frankly, that's a dominant view. In fact, a, a study done at Baylor, I think 38% of American Christians have that view. If that's what you think about God, that's going to determine your whole spiritual life. Hmm. Because you're going to orient your life around this angry God, trying to get that angry God not as angry, and maybe through going to church, reading your Bible, doing not trying not to sin, whatever it is, mm-hmm. And, uh, you're going to have a very distant relationship with that God. But if you, and, and you, you said it so well, if you adopt Jesus narratives about who God was, then you're going to see that, wait a minute, this God is not like an angry judge, but by a, but like a loving father or a loving parent. Let's just, let's maybe get general, ne- gender neutral on that. Mm-hmm. And let's say, what's the, the best version of some parental person who's, who's who just lives in complete love toward their child and wants nothing but the best for them, loves them even when they mess up, uh, isn't want, to, doesn't want to punish them, maybe disciplines them if necessary, because that's a part of love. Mm-hmm. But this, this idea that the Trinity is a community of loving persons, and that's what Jesus revealed. And so if you just take his theology alone, because he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if we look at Jesus, how he acted, what he said, what he did, how he talked about God, you end up with this, well, to use the title of my book, a good and beautiful God who is the most glorious being in the universe. And as Dallas said, the most joyful being in the universe. There's one to try on. right? Because a lot of people can't even think about, wait, God being joyful? But he is. And so to me, I think that's the number one issue or narrative is, what comes into our mind when we think about God and if i can think about God the way jesus thought about the god and taught about God then i'm in i mean that is huge that alone's going to change the trajectory of my life second and not to go on too long here but second i think our narratives about who we are hmm. uh it's not just who god is that's the huge one but then secondarily but related is How do I think about myself? Because just as people think about God as an angry judge who wants to punish them, many people also think about themselves as a despicable, slimy, awful, worm, deficient, broken, ugly, not enough, on and on and on. And those horrific, toxic views of ourselves also doesn't match with what Jesus was teaching because he looked at the most broken person and said, uh, God loves you, and and it, uh, the woman caught the woman uh, at the well, who was living in sin, as we say, whose whose life was a wreck. And he basically he didn't judge her at all. He just said, "Hey, I have some water that you're never going to thirst again." He didn't say shape up, get better. He just said, "Here it is." And Zacchaeus, or on and on, the list goes. Uh, he saw people as these beautiful people created in the image of God, who God loves, or to use Paul's language, that we're God's beloved. So I think if you can say, I want to know the good and beautiful God Jesus revealed, and I want to see myself as God's beloved, now you are, you got it.
0: Hmm. I I recently, I heard a podcast where N.T. Wright said that we often view Jesus by how we view God, when rather we should view God and how we see Jesus. Oh, that's beautiful. That's it. Um, with that in mind, what do you think it is that we, uh, when it comes to sin, I, I think, you know, the way I grew up was that sin makes God mad. God killed Jesus because of it. Don't sin or else you make God mad. Jesus seems to view it as more of a, well, you're just missing out. Mm-hmm. A- and you're, 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 yeah. You're putting impediments in your way that you don't necessarily need to be there. You're failing to thrive, I think is what, what Keller says. H- how do you view sin when you look at God through the lens of Jesus versus uh, looking at Jesus through the lens of God?
1: Oh, that's brilliant. Uh, yeah, because the way I understand sin, and, and we we have this lovely story in Genesis. It's not lovely, actually. It's the story of the fall. But, I mean, it's it's lovely in the sense that it's this beautiful uh, depiction of something that, that's at the heart of the human person. And that is, is that there is something built within us that wants to be God, that wants to turn, hmm. and wants to trust in our own sufficiency, that um, refuses to trust in the goodness of God, that thinks, well, I've got to take care of this myself. I've got to be independent. Um, and And that was the core of the temptation was, hey, if you can you really trust God? Because you know, the the serpent basically got Eve thinking twice hmm. about whether or not God was good, and she was like, "Wow, I wonder if He did lie to me." And then she her response was, "Well, maybe this God's not worth trusting. Maybe I better take care of this myself." And I think that's the core of sin, and there there is this pride. I think to, it, C.S. Lewis talked about the, the core of all sin is pride. There's this something within us, this pride dimension that wants to turn and be independent of God as opposed to living in surrender and trust. And so I think when we turn, then then we're in that place of, of the disconnection from God and then we have to figure out a way to find something ultimate and sin will be that replacement. So, uh, yeah, I think that's Jesus was, was inviting us to say, let go of that and, and trust that, that God is sufficient for all of your needs. But there is that thing that, that, uh, that broken Hmm. part of who we are that, that I, I know even myself as one who's been a Christ follower for a long time, I'm not immune. I still have to trust in the goodness of God and and rebuke that pride dimension inside of me.
0: We've talked a lot about how we think about God and, and mind discipleship and and obviously this practicing the presence of God. Uh, when when you obviously you're part of a church, uh, so you, you only see it from all sides. Uh, but you're also in the kind of the business of talking about how we live these things out. When it comes to discipleship, how has the church got it wrong? How have they got it right? Well, you, that's a big one, there, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: you, you're touching on a, a big one. And, but I think it's it's fair to say that the church is is God's best arrangement for His people, and nothing has ever improved upon upon that. And so that's Mm -hmm. why I love the church. That's why I'm a part of the the local church, because it's the place where I go to be shaped and formed through the stories, through the prayers, the practices, they make me who I am. And and that's crucial. But when it comes to discipleship and formation, uh, the church has frankly not done a very good job. And I, I say that because if you look at the, the number of people in our churches who are living their lives as active disciples of Jesus. And by that, Rusty, I mean people who wake up on Monday morning and say, my whole life is oriented around the reality of the risen Christ. So my marriage, my job, my finances, my, my time management, everything about my life is going to be influenced by that. That's what discipleship is. The number of people who are doing that is pretty small. I think Mm -hmm. Uh, Peter Wagner estimated, he was an old Fuller professor back in the day, he estimated around 10% of a given congregation are doing that. Uh, I speak with pastors a lot, and I've shared that number, and most pastors think that number's high. (laughs) So so if you're talking about, and that's pastors being honest, right? They're not proud of that number. But... If that's the case, then you say, well, Jesus said that go, therefore, and make disciples. He didn't say make Christians or make church members or churchgoers or whatever. He said make disciples. If that's our primary task and less than 10% are doing it, then obviously we're failing. I mean, no business could stay in business if it had a 10% return on investment. So, Mm. I, I hate to be that direct and mean, but we 're not and we could talk probably for a long, long time on why that 's failing and how we might fix it but I think that's that 's the quick
0: answer to your question i 'm always amused when i when I go to uh, pastors conferences because i i 've been in ministry now for twenty five years and so i 've been to a number of these conferences. And they often ask, well, what are you guys wrestling with right now? And every year it's the same thing, how to make disciples, you know, how to grow people in their faith. It's like we've never quite figured that one out. And, and I'm susceptible as any pastor to this. We're always looking for the silver bullet. We're looking for the, the magic formula. And it's just not there because it is so much life on life it is so much of the mentorship mentality and that's just really hard to mass produce as we as we've mentioned so i i mm-hmm. agree with you and uh and i'm still scratching my head on that one but uh, trying our best and i think another another thing that we wrestle with is what works for us doesn't always work for somebody else i love to read but i'm kind of alone in that area. There's, there's not a lot of people buying books and reading books that that I'm interested in. So when I pass a book on to somebody, you know, it often just goes on their coffee table or on their shelf. Um, so I think we have different ways of doing it. Would you agree with that? Oh, for
1: sure. Yeah. I, I, and, I and the first thing I want to say is that, I, I mean, let's not be uh, too critical of pastors. They have a huge job. <laughs> Thank and you. there's so much pressure... <laughs> Um, no, I ha- my respect for pastors is off the charts. I, I, you know, I think about as they say, rocket scientists or mm-hmm. physicians or uh, I mean, all these great professions, very noble. But to me, the pastor is at the top because they're they're doing the most important work and they get the least support. They, their salaries are terrible, and they're on twenty four seven. And there's pressure from above them, if they're in churches that have bishops or superintendents
0: mm-hmm.
1: that are pressuring them to do to succeed in terms of uh, the ABCs of church success, which is attendance, building, and cash. Mm-hmm. So they've got they've got pressure from above. They've got pressure from below, where parishioners are wanting them to be perfect and and solve all their problems, and they want to know why their church isn't the biggest church in town too. So. I mean, it's just a hard job. Mm-hmm. And and to then say, well, how come you're only getting 10% return on your discipleship prog- programs? Because uh, they've got an enormous amount of other stuff to do. <laughs> and discipleship is the long game. Discipleship is not short-term. It's one thing to preach an entertaining message and have people go, oh, I like this church, I'm going to keep going here. And amen to that. But it's a, it's a whole nother thing to say between now and the next five years, I'd like you to do, to uh, grow in your issues with anger hmm. and impatience, and the way you judge people, and how you're compassionate and <laughs> and all that stuff. That's not overnight. Mm-hmm. That's that's the long game, as I like to say, mm-hmm. and that's going to take a lot of fortitude and saying no to things to make to say yes to things. So
0: it's uh, a <laughs> No, I think you're spot on, and it's a challenge. And we love the long game, don't we? (laughs) (laughs) Everybody's racing out to get the long game approach to life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay, let me ask you about uh, a couple guys you've mentioned, because I've only known them from their writings. And tell me, what's the thing, one or two things, that you learned the most from Dallas and from Richard Foster? So many. That's a
1: hard question. Um, I think both of them. If I if I have to answer one for both, because they were different, but but similar. But I would say they both had a vibrant interconnection with the Trinity. Like they knew the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in in a real way. Hmm. Like, like when they spoke about about God and about the kingdom. It wasn't from just ideas in their head. They, they really had lived into it. And it, felt, it just felt authentic when they would talk about, about that life. And so like, for example, Richard and I were prayer partners for a long time. And just to hear him talk about uh, what God was teaching him, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't just a, a bunch of ideas. It was, it was real life stuff. Like, like I got the feeling that when he was praying, he, Jesus was really there, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like in the room, like you and I are now talking and, and Dallas the same way it was, it was, uh, just this genuine life that they had. And that was the thing, as I said earlier, that's the thing It's like, I want what they have because there's nothing more winsome than that. You just go, that is a life that I want. I mean, both men were very different. Dallas was a philosopher and um you know, he he just he had a mind that was off the charts in terms of his intellect. So to be around him was was huge because the guy knew everything about everything. And I'm I'm not just being uh, facetious about it. He really did. Like he he underst- he followed sports, he followed finances, politics, and just to be around him was was astounding. You went, how does someone know? <laughs> I mean, we were in a hotel. We were checking into a hotel in San Francisco, and there was a woman at the counter who had an accent. I could tell she had an accent. I didn't know where she was from. So I just said, um, may I ask where you're originally from? And she just oh, thank you. She said, well, I'm, I'm originally from Hungary. And I turned to Dallas and I said, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed because I don't know anything about Hungary. Like, I don't know that I could find it on a globe if, if, there were, if it wasn't marked, you know? And, uh, and Dallas, he, he didn't judge me. He just looked right at me and he said, well, you know, Hungary right now is going through some political turmoil and their, their economic <laughs> situation is blah, 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 blah. And he goes on this 10-minute explanation of the state of Hungary. And I thought, how did you have that loaded up? <laughs> like, uh, you just you just knew that because I I can't find it on the globe. I mean, if, if, you, if someone helps me, I go, oh, there's hungry. But and he was like that about about everything. So just fascinating to see a person like him.
0: Wow, that's that's so great. Thank you for for sharing some of those thoughts with us. And for our listeners, I would just say just, just start reading what they wrote. The, the, the most recent thing I read by by Dallas was. Uh, a life without lack which i think was a collection of his sunday school messages if i'm not mistaken right that was that was just fantastic so oh i'm so grateful for that book yeah yeah it was it was a a real treat over the past uh the past year all right let me ask you about somebody else that you knew very well and that's rich mullins and for our listeners who are are not really aware of of his life um this is a guy that was at the apex of the Christian music world back in the early '90s, and and left it all to go teach music to kids on an Indian reservation um, in New Mexico. But in between, he lived in Wichita, where I believe he lived in your attic. Is that correct? Yeah, an attic apartment.
1: So okay. I don't want people thinking he was he was literally like you know <laughs> amidst a bunch of boxes with dust. He it was an actual. It was an attic that was converted into an apartment, had a bathroom and a bedroom and so forth. Uh But yes, he did live there
0: for two years. (laughs) Well, well, tell me, tell me, what did you learn from Rich? Did you know him before he enrolled at Friends? And what are the things you still think about when it comes to Rich and his music and maybe one or two songs that that are your favorite that really speak to you about his thoughts on Jesus and, and following God and these kind of things? Well, I
1: I didn't know him prior to when I met him. Uh, I knew the song "Awesome God" because okay. that was just so huge. Uh, you, you could, if you were a person who listened to any Christian radio back in those days, uh, I mean, it was a number one song for a long time. So I knew "Awesome God," but I didn't know anything about him. And uh, he he came to friends, as you mentioned, he wanted to get a degree to help teach. Uh, Music to Native kids on the reservation, and he frankly didn't need a degree to do that. But <laughs> typical of Rich, he he felt like no. I mean, if I'm going to teach music, I need to be educated. And he didn't finish college at uh, Cincinnati Bible College back mm-hmm. in the day. He went he went he went there a long time, but never <laughs> graduated. Uh, so he thought, well, this is perfect. I'll just go do that. So he came to to French University, and uh, I saw him on campus. But frankly, he looked like a homeless person. Mm-hmm. So I, he he did not look like the album cover that I had seen mm-hmm. where he's all cleaned up with his short hair and his dog and mm. uh, <laughs> looking all, all, uh, but so I saw him and I, I was frankly a little concerned. I, I I thought, do I need to call security? because he didn't look like a, Emmy's per- he's older, he was non-traditional student, so he. I thought, well, there's a guy with r- ripped up jeans and, a, and an old t-shirt and long hair and barefoot. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and uh, so I, I, a student actually was standing next to me and she was, she knew him. Like she had got, she had met him since he moved back to Wichita. And she could tell I was concerned and she said, do you know who that is? And I said, no, I'm frankly a little concerned. She said, oh no, that's Rich Mullins. And I said, You mean like uh, Awesome God, Rich Mullins, the singer? And she goes, yeah, that's him. And I said, wow, he doesn't look like that what I thought. And she kind of laughed. And so he came to chapel that, I think that same day. And back in the day, I ran our chapel here. And so afterwards, he introduced himself. And uh, and then that night, he actually came to our house uninvited. (laughs) He just knocked on our door about 10 o'clock at night (laughs) and uh, said, came in. And my wife and I started talking with him, and I think he stayed for about three hours. Oh my goodness! <laughs> and yeah, it was it was totally bizarre. And then he just kind of like the the cat you you give milk to that just just keeps coming back. He just kept coming back every few nights. Rich would knock on our door, and and so that's how our friendship developed. And <laughs> eventually, uh, we became pretty close friends. And then his his uh, writing partner, his guy uh, beaker was his, his nickname yep. got married and so rich they shared a house together and so rich thought well i need a place to live i'm going to let them have this house so he he came to me and said do you, do you think i could live in your attic <laughs> and i said like well i have to ask my wife and so i did and <laughs> she said sure and so he that's how he moved in and then we just spent an enormous amount of time together and that's where we came became really close so that was the origin of our friendship, and again, you you nailed it, uh, Rusty. That was it was a time when he turned his back on success and fame in Nashville, and becoming a big celebrity, and decided, "No, I don't want that." Which was amazing that he did that. But he just saw through the shallowness of all that of money. He didn't care about money. He didn't care about fame. So uh, he just cared about Jesus and the kingdom and wanted to make a difference. He cared about the plight of native peoples, and so um, uh, he lived with us while he was preparing. For, and it was just really weird because here's this internationally acclaimed singer songwriter and he's taking band practice and he's in the choir and, <laughs> and, and I'm just, it's so funny to me. And he was so intimidated by the band professor because, uh, I mean, he played the French horn badly <laughs> and he played the cello and he played all these, and cause he just had to pick instruments. And, uh, he was so intimidated by the band professor, and I was like, "Rich, you're like famous. Like you travel around the world, and why are you intimidated by a, a little college band professor?" But, he, but he was. But he, he was a delight to to be with, and hmm. and his his love for God, his his artistic ability was off the charts, and that's I think what the world gets in his music. That how could someone write melodies and lyrics that are so beautiful and profound it's 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 a gift Hmm. it's an absolute i I watched him i I came home one day and he'd been working on a song and uh, he was on the front porch we had a swing on the front porch and he was playing the song on his guitar and he played a little bit and he and i he said what do you think i said it's great and he said, "How about some coffee?" So I went inside. I made a pot of coffee. By the time I came back, the song was done, <laughs> and it was it, it was the song "Brothers Keeper." Oh wow! And so he, he he had written that song
0: in about fifteen minutes. Oh my goodness!
1: And of course, it, you know, it wasn't fifteen minutes. It was his whole lifetime he it took to write it, as they say. Right. But uh, but his giftedness to write was off the charts. You mentioned favorite songs. I would say, um, of course, "Hold Me, Jesus" is. Yep. Is one of those songs that always hits me at a deep place, and oh, there's the the list goes on and on. I would say, uh, uh, you know, step by step, Awesome God. I love Rich. Didn't like Awesome God. He got tired of it because he Mm -hmm. had to play it so much. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, I think the entire album of Liturgy Legacy and Ragamuffin Band. Mm. That album to me is his magnum opus because those there isn't a song on that album that's bad I think every right. one of them are are masterful so
0: yeah what he did with that last song on on that album Land of My Sojourner is just mind-boggling mm. the going back and forth between you know the, the stories in the Bible versus where we live today I, I still get so much out of that song and, and every song on that album um, I, for, for me I mean the, the list is long But I think Hard to Get is the song that best Mm. sums up his life and grief and his relationship with God and kind of this almost love-hate relationship he seemed to have at times and wrestling with who God was. I just, I love the rawness of that song, which it just still moves me to this day. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that song because I haven't thought about that song
1: for years and you're right. It is... Oh, it's an amazing song. So thank you. (laughs) I mean, that's the great thing about about a person who wrote so many great songs. You can forget Uh some of them and go, oh, wow, that's great. Good job, Rusty, because that's, (laughs) I love that song. I hadn't thought about it for a long, long time.
0: Well, I want to spend just a moment talking about um, a difficult season uh, of your life, but Rich talked about this. Often, and I think I think about it in terms of that song "Hard to Get" and understanding where God is and our our grief and our struggle. But but you and your wife had a daughter by the name of Madeline who had multiple birth defects, if I'm not mistaken. Right. And Rich was around during that time, and and would say that he would often go pray his prayers uh, in her ear at night, even though she couldn't really hear. He viewed her as almost an angel. Uh, talk about just madeline and and the, the just the the struggle of understanding where God was in all of that and after she passed away just living with grief but moving through grief what did you learn about God through that time wow what didn 't I learn because that was such a uh,
1: that was one of those deep valleys where you don 't want them in your life but uh, when you 've when you've gone through them, you can't believe all that you've learned. Uh, yeah. So yeah, Rich had moved away. He'd gone onto the reservation when my wife, Megan, was pregnant with our second child and we had no idea there was anything wrong because the pregnancy had been fine. But at the very tail end, um, the child that she was carrying hadn't been growing. And so they did some tests and, and were are discovering some problems and it, it ended up being that she had a, Uh, a chromosomal disorder and uh and that left her in a condition where she was a failure to thrive and grow so Hmm. her life expectancy was cut short they didn't think she'd live they some doctors thought she wouldn't live beyond birth but she did and then some said well she won't live past two which she did actually barely live past the age of two but uh yeah, it I mean having a special needs child. I'm sure some of your listeners can relate or know someone who has. I mean, it's mm-hmm. uh it's it's you you're not n- there's no way you're you're built for that. I mean, mm-hmm. children aren't parents aren't to be to bury their kids or to go through that kind of grief and suffering. So it was it, it was a deep valley. I mean, I'm glad that I had a a strong vibrant faith going into it as did my wife, so our our faith wasn't Taken away from us, we didn't distrust God in it, but it definitely made you question a lot, and uh, it made you take the things that you believe about God and about life and about the afterlife, about heaven, and all of that becomes very real. and uh, And Rich was, you know, he he was very moved by Madeline, and so much so, and it, it was typical of Rich. He didn't have a lot of words. Like when I talked to him on the phone when I first gave him the news about her condition, uh, he was mostly silent. Hmm. And it frankly, it made me a little mad because I thought, does this guy not care? Uh, I mean, he just was pretty... I I was pouring out my heart, and he wasn't saying much. Hmm. But uh, I later realized that that was... He was so moved. He just didn't have words. And so I think it was about uh, four or five months later... He came back through Wichita, and he brought some of the guys in his band, and he came into our living room, and he said, hey, I've, I've written a song I want to play, and it was a song he wrote for Madeline called Madeline's Song, mm. and, uh, and it's this incredibly beautiful mm-hmm. song, and it says everything that you sort of hinted at about, about Madeline praying for him, and because uh, she held her hands in a posture of prayer. Uh, quite, that was her most natural state, was her hands were kind of together. It looked like she was praying. Wow. And uh, so th- that, that uh, moved Rich a great deal. And, and, and he knew that she was pretty profoundly deaf, but yet yeah, he did whisper his prayers in her ear. So he, he wrote this incredible song, <laughs> and that was his way of saying everything he wanted to say to us. Hmm. But he just couldn't say in, in prose. He could only say it in poetry.
0: Wow. Um, for our listeners who find themselves stuck in grief... They haven't made their way through it yet. Maybe it's the loss of a child. Maybe it's a a suicide. They're grieving. Maybe it's just personal pain. And they hear people talk about how they've made it through grief or they see the other side of it. Uh, What would you say to them about lessons you've learned about how to memorialize without... um, being stuck in that season, and obviously it never goes away, you never stop thinking about her, but how are, how are you able to move through it rather than stay in it?
1: Yeah, I, I think that, and that's a good way to put it, you, you do, you do, you move forward, right? Life continues to go on, and I, I remember at first thinking, how can it? Because I remember the day that she died, and uh, I, I remember I looked out, out the hospital window, And I think we were on like the ninth floor and I just looked out and there were all these cars just driving people, their lives were moving on. And I thought, well, how come the world hasn't stopped? Mm -hmm. Because my world did, but uh, that's the nature of it, right? I mean, life does continue to go on and you figure out how to keep going. But I think for me, this, this is where your faith becomes... Really, real, because if I, if we believe, and I do, that Jesus uh, was the Son of God who defeated death and rose from the dead, and uh, and runs this universe. If that's the case, then that's going to change everything that uh, that happens to us. So, and I think Paul put it really well in I think it's First First Thessalonians four, I think. he says, uh, brothers and sisters, I do want, I do not want you to grieve as others grieves. Um, but because we grieve with people who have hope Hmm. and, and that's, I think, you know, hope is, is that Dallas Willard defined hope as certainty in a good future. And the idea is that, uh, though we go through the dark valleys here, ultimately that's not the last word. And and, and hope is that, that certainty that the God who is good now will be good to us in the future. And so, um, frankly, that's why when my wife was pregnant uh, again for our, th- our third child, and it was a little girl who was born, uh, we named her hope <laughs> and we named, we named her hope because, uh, that's what God had taught us that, uh, there is a God who's good and ultimately there's always hope. And, uh, and, and we do, and I love, I love what Paul's saying. He said, look, no, we do grieve. We just grieve differently because if you don't have that faith, that knowledge of this God who is good and who has defeated death and runs all the thing I said, then you just have grief. You don't have anything else. But if you, if you have that, then you grieve, but you have hope Hmm. and that changes everything and uh and it's a little corny you know i i, I love the old gaither song <laughs> you, know, you remember that old song because he lives oh, yes and, it, and i mean it's an oldie but a goodie but it, it, the lyrics just it's you know because he lives i can face tomorrow uh because he lives all fear is gone because i know oh oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah you have he to holds say that. the future yeah you have to say it with the with the Three syllables uh-huh. <laughs> uh, because I, I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives and, right uh, can't really beat that that's I think that would be my word to anybody who's listening who has mm. uh, struggle with grief or is in the midst of that valley is uh,
0: he lives and, and and we can keep going Wow. What a wonderful word for our listeners, and thank you, uh, Jim, for sharing that. Um, I, I want to close with just—I I, want to give you a free shot here. Of imagine you're listening or you're talking with a, a group of our uh, people from our churches, and they're they're wanting to read something beyond what they've read <laughs> off of the uh, um, typical Christian bookstore list. And they want to read something with some depth. They, they want to read something that really challenges their soul or even comforts it. Maybe something a little bit old. Give us four or five of your favorites um, from some of the classic authors. That would be a great place for some people to start. Well, that's a great question, and there's
1: there are so many, really. Um, St. Augustine's Confessions is, is, is I think, one of the greatest Christian books of all time, and it's just it's uh, it's an obviously an old book. I mean, he's he's writing uh, in the fourth century, so this is probably for many listeners it'll be like the oldest book they've ever read, next to the Bible. But Augustine was a brilliant theologian, but his book, The Confessions, was a was a memoir of his life, and so it's it's biographical in nature. So there's story, but he manages to just. To talk about the nature and character of God and the Christian life in ways that are unsurpassed, I think that's why that book has been around for for all these centuries and still continues to inform people. Um, I think any of the writings of Henry Nowen, hmm. uh Life of the Beloved, is is a deep book. It's it's a, it's a very accessible book. Uh, Henry passed away. Oh gosh, probably coming up on twenty years ago now. But yeah, I
0: think it is twenty.
1: But uh, his his writings in the 80s and 90s were as good as it gets. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Cost of Discipleship was is an unsurpassed book on on discipleship. CS mm-hmm. um, so yes, anything by Lewis would be would be worth it. Mere Christianity uh, changed my life, to be sure. Uh, and 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 if someone likes fiction the chronicles of narnia are quite brilliant mm-hmm. and uh much more accessible than tolkien's lord of the rings books yes. although those are great too but <laughs> but narnia is is very readable um saint Teresa of avila's interior castle uh <laughs> there's again an older book i mean that's uh, gosh coming up on 800 i don't know not that long six seven hundred years old but it but uh her book about the inner life is that's that's a more challenging one I don't recommend that one for everybody but mm-hmm. interior castle is is uh is quite good and there's just so many I could I could go on and on I can't
0: uh I better stop there. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jim, this has been uh, so rich and so uh beneficial for for our listeners, certainly for me and behalf of all of us who have been impacted by your writings and by your life, uh, thank you. And your podcast is amazing. And please keep that up. Uh, don't stop that. That's so helpful for all of us. I will do. Uh, and, thank uh, you. So so grateful for you. So uh, would you mind closing our time together by just praying for us? And uh, we'll just kind of wrap up that way this time.
1: Absolutely. I'd be honored to do that. Gracious Abba, we give thanks that you have invited us into an intimate relationship with you. We're grateful that you love us far beyond what we can understand, that you are deeply fond of each one of us in a way that uh, is so profound and, and real that's hard for us to grasp in a world that tells us we're less than or deficient. But thank you, Holy Spirit, for leading us into the life of faith. Thank you, Jesus, for... Um, reflecting the Father to us and for your life and death and resurrection and and inviting us into that life thank you Father for this incredible universe that's complex and beautiful and uh, for loving us beyond what we can can ever grasp so uh, I pray for everyone listening that we would know the height and depth and breadth of the love of God and that we would sing and dance in his kingdom because of the knowledge of that love and that we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you so much. And
0: uh, I sure appreciate your time, Jim. This has been a blessing. Thank you, Rusty. It's been a blessing to me. Thanks. Well, thanks so much for listening. I hope you got as much out of that as I did and just incredible stuff. Take a moment and share this with a friend. And I look forward to uh, talking with you again next time we're together.